In his lyrical, moving 1994 autobiography and reflection called The Return of the Prodigal Son, author Henry Nowen recounts how a chance encounter with a poster, a poster of Rembrandt's The Prodigal Son, literally changed his life. You see, after some 20-some years as a successful university professor, Nowen decided to completely disrupt his life and become a spiritual leader in a community of intellectually handicapped persons in Toronto. It's called L'Arche in French, which translated as Ark, as in Noah's Ark. And it's a global network of Christian communities serving the intellectually handicapped. And in this book, now one places his own journey into the narrative of each of the characters of the prodigal son. First, he's the wayward son. So enmeshed in the years as a university professor and climbing the ladder, and political involvement in the conflicts of war-torn Central America, but he finds himself exhausted and lost. He longs for the comfort of the father's hand on his tired shoulders, to feel his warm, welcoming embrace. Then, following his life change to go work at Lars, a conversation with a friend showed how much he was actually like his older brother, like the older brother in the story. He had always followed the rules, done what was being asked of him, what was expected of him. But he noticed how much he resented those who had taken the easier path, maybe gotten a few breaks along the way. His friend reminded him how much he was like this brother, keeping himself aloof, distant, a little judgmental. And as I read that, I thought, we all need friends like that. And finally, a colleague called him during a later, another dark period in his life and told him that he needed to realize that he's called to be the father. She says, you have been looking for friends all your life. You've been craving affection. The time has come for you to recognize your true calling, to be the father who can welcome his children home without asking any questions, without wanting anything in return. She continues, we need you to be the father who can claim for himself the authority of compassion. The authority of compassion. As someone who's had my own experience as both the lost prodigal son and a dutiful older brother, I must admit those words stuck with me as I think about how to be the best priest for you in this beloved community of St. Peter's. There are many similarities you see in the story of my own and, and Nowen's. You have to admit Luke's story of the prodigal son is, at least for me anyway, among the top two or three best stories in all the Gospels. I think it's right there with Mary and Martha, which we're going to hear about next week, and maybe even the Samaritan woman. I think it's right up there. It's so amazingly put together. Every single word matters. It opens, there was a man who had two sons, and conflict comes in from the start. Now, this younger son wants his share of the inheritance, and he wants it now. And this is scandalous, because in the ancient Near East, and, and in many cultures still today, this son is effectively saying, Dad, you're taking too long to die. I need my money now. The father gives him his inheritance, and the son ventures to a distant country, we're told, where through a combination of bad behavior, dissolute living, as we hear, and bad luck, famine that strikes the land, he finds himself starving 
and envious of the very carob shells that the pigs he's tending to are eating. And we're told that when he came to himself, when he came to himself, he realizes he can return to the Father. Now, Linda spoke last week of metanoia, of turning, as, as repentance. And I think here we see it again. He came to himself. Somehow, his lens shifted and turned him back home. And on the way, he rehearses his story. He'll confess his sins to his father. He'll cast off his own birthright, his own sonship, and work as a hired hand, no longer a son. He's willing to lose his relationship with his father in order to survive. And as we'll see, the father will have none of that. Now, it's tempting to put in opposition this wandering, dissolute son as the sinful one compared to his upright, dutiful older brother, the one who stuck around. And in the older brother's short exchange with his father, his own darkness, his own quietly rumbling sinfulness quickly comes to light. He refuses to go into the celebration. And the father comes out wanting to keep a relationship with this son too. And the older son lays right into him. He's angry. And he's also disingenuous. His claim to have worked like a slave for him doesn't make sense since he's also working for his own inheritance. He doesn't even acknowledge the relationship with his own brother. He calls his brother, this son of yours, to the father. Now keep in mind, by all rights, the older brother's in the right. His younger brother did leave, and he stayed dutifully behind. He honored his father. By the rule of law and by society, he's right to be upset and dishonor his younger sibling. And he thinks his father's not acting fatherly enough. But what's really happening here is in the interaction, is in his interaction with both the younger and the older brother, the father is recognizing something higher, a higher calling, a greater requirement, if you will. He's valuing the relationship above all else. In our library, there's a heavily penciled-up copy of Miroslav Volf's 1996 book, Exclusion and Embrace. And if you see Mary Ferguson, tell her I didn't make the pencil marks. Someone else did. It wasn't me. So, And the pages that focus on the story of the prodigal son are especially marked up, with whoever was reading this making a lot of comments like, oh, this is me, I do this, oh my, you know, OMG, etc., etc., and, several li- and there's one line that has several lines and a star next to it. And it's the claim that the father rejects traditional rule of law because he clings to one bigger, more fundamental rule. And what's underlined in stars says, quote, relationship has priority over all other rules. The father rejects the moral categories of good and bad behavior held by the older brother and held by society. He rejects them not because they are wrong, but because they miss the point. It's all about relationship. Relationship with each other and relationship with God. The father's demonstrating a kind of third way to address the conflicts that we see in the story of the prodigal son. The younger son is welcomed back into relationship. He's called son. Now he still must confess, and there's no inheritance for him anymore, but he's back again in relationship. And the older brother will still get all that is his father's. 
but the father implores him to welcome back his estranged brother to restore that relationship. I don't know about you, but I am periodically visited by what I call my monkey mind. It's usually late at night or early morning, and suddenly my brain starts playing over and over again some way in which I feel like I was forgotten or ignored or in some way treated poorly. Now, I'm sometimes inclined to send that late-night email or text, but I'll admit I've gotten a lot better at avoiding that trap. I have to say right now I'm kind of struggling with a note to the bishop about realm, but you understand where I am with that, so amen. So I find myself like Henry Nouwen in his book. I find myself often playing one of the sons. Sometimes I'm the prodigal son of the prodigal son's self, wanting to run away, wanting to put distance between me and whatever is my source of pain. And sometimes I'm the older son's self, filled with self-righteous anger. Look, I, I did what I was told. Either way, the monkey mind is in control. And the future, I hope to think about the father in this story when my monkey mind gets going. I'll try to remind myself to recenter and to focus on the relationship. Not on what may seem wrong or right according to some code or what I think or what I feel, but to figure out what I can do, what I must do, to strengthen the relationship that is at the center. Rembrandt's painting of the prodigal son is in the Hermitage Museum in St. Petersburg, Russia. Now, I've not seen it, but I'm told it's a massive piece of art measuring something like six and a half feet by eight and a half feet. And the prodigal son kneels before his father. He's dressed in rags. His head is shorn. He's thin. He's almost like a prisoner of war or a Holocaust victim. His father embraces him from above, bathed in light. And what's interesting is one hand on the son is muscular, like he's holding the hungry son in a strong, comforting embrace. And it's said that that's Rembrandt's own hand. And the other one is more delicate, more feminine. It appears to caress the returning son, to welcome him home, to put him at ease. God waits for us to return from that distant country, whatever that is. The distant country that separates us from God and from each other. God sees us before we even get close. And when we get there, we're held in a strong embrace with one hand while we're being caressed in an endless stream of love with the other. And we're at peace. We're home. We started this morning with a confession. And in a few minutes, we'll feast. Now, we're not going to feast on the fatted calf of the story in the prodigal son. Not yet. That comes later after, after Christ's return. Today we feast on the sacrament of Christ's body and blood and restore in doing that for the moment that relationship for which we were made, that relationship with God in warm embrace and with each other as God's beloved children, which he formed and calls good. Amen.